my guest today is Claude Barfield. He's a resident scholar here at AEI, where he researches trade policy. He's here today to discuss the U.S.-China trade conflict, as well as issues like intellectual property theft, Huawei, and the battle to build the world's 5G infrastructure. Claude, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. As we're talking, we are in the, I think, last full week uh, of March. The U.S.-China trade conflict is ongoing. It seems that every few days it sounds like there's been some progress made and then appears that progress has not been made. So here's broadly indicate where you think we're at in this, in this trade conflict and how you see it sort of you know, playing out over the next few months. Well, I'm not sure how it'll play out. I think where where we are is that the uh, Mr. Lighthizer is trying to keep the president on track. U.S. Trade Representative. Yes, the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer is trying to keep the president on track to uh, back him in pushing for structural reforms in China related to regulations that that uh, that hurt foreign companies, not just U.S. companies, IP theft, technology transfer force forcing of foreign companies, and to keep that on the table as opposed to just being bought off by the Chinese who prom- promised to buy more agricultural products. Right. And it's up in the air as to whether or not uh, ha- how that will succeed. So, there, so there's a tension there um, that uh, the president, as I've heard many of his speeches, seems focused on the bilateral trade deficit between the two countries. Uh, he wants them to buy more, maybe a lot more uh, sort of, of our stuff, soybeans and you know, other, other things as well. Yet there's also sort of a wing of the administration that wants these other kinds of changes. How They really want a much different trading relationship and they want sort of also a change in how in the Chinese economy. They want to try to push to being a little bit more market oriented, less subsidies of business, that kind of thing. So you have sort of two paths would seem to be in conflict. It would seem to get easier to get a deal on the one, China buying more stuff. Yes. And, is, yes. is, and which of the, so which of those camps? But it's not just, out? I would say that it's not just within the administration. I think the business community, although it has to be careful, particularly those uh, those multinationals who want to do business in China, it backs, backs the administration and backs Mr. Lighthouse, the U.S. trade representative. It's also true that the president... Uh, is being pushed by, of all things, the Democrats in Congress who are sending letters. You know, they're they're playing this hypocritically, but they're they're pushing the president. Don't give in. Don't just sell out in terms of wheat or soybeans. And so, I think it's it's within the administration, uh, but it's also outside of the administration. There's others who think that we really ought to. We're, you you might disagree with the way the administration got into it with tariffs or whatever, but once we're in it. This is really a strategic – it's not just a trade, but I think a strategic set of negotiations. If we walk away from it, we're actually handing a lot of the future in terms of technology, I think, to the Chinese. Do you have any sense, um, whether just by observing the president or talking to anybody, where the president's mind is on this? And I think certainly coming into it, the, again, the focus was on trade deficits, something he's been talking about for decades. Do you think he has accepted sort of this more strategic – rationale that that's what should be the purpose of what's happening right now with trade and these tariffs. And that, that that's where we need to be going. Yeah, I, I make no claims to know anything internally. I've been a strong critic of the administration, okay. so they wouldn't – I don't have any internal knowledge. Um, I think the president – it's like other things in trade. The president has been partially persuaded – parallel to his instincts and sometimes against his instincts that the deeper structural questions with China related to China are important. But he, his instincts are 
have always been to look at the trade the trade balance, the trade right. deficit. And also, you've got to realize that the president, um, I think, you know, at this point, we're speaking, you know, right after the Mueller report, is, at least introductions of it have, have come out, and th- things are going pretty well. And so he's got to think about the election of 2020, but he's not in a terrible position. He still thinks, I think, he needs or would like to have some kind of trade agreement that he can trumpet with the Chinese. So you get those con- not, not necessarily conflicting, but at least competing, uh, I think, uh, elements in his mind. Uh, he, he, he knows and is aware, I think, and Trump's not a stupid guy. He may be a la- intellectually lazy one, but he's not a stupid guy. He knows what the issues are here. It's just a question. And th- to be fair to him, any president would have this kind of pull and tug in the year before the election, his re-election. Right. Attempted uh, re-election. And he, he also seems focused a lot on the uh, on the stock market. It seems like uh, investors have sort of assumed that there'll be some sort of deal which at the very least would not involve more tariffs or higher tariffs and preferably a uh, a reduction of some or all the tariffs. That seems sort of baked into the cake in people's, at least as I read it, people's expectations. Yes, I, because it also seems that China also is very interested yes. in, in getting these tariffs off. Yes. They're not an inc- even may, they might be the main thing driving the Chinese economy, but they don't seem inconsequential. Right. Well, Xi Jinping is under has been under increasing press, pressure as the year has gone on. So this year has gone on, and the end of last year. I think in the question of in, you, you asked me originally how I thought it would would play out. I don't know the answer to that exactly, but I think one thing if if you as if you think as I do that the structural issues are the most important, you're probably not going to be able to get you know. Signing on the dotted line for everything and see that everything is actually will change, and so I think the best from my perspective, uh, even though I'm not happy about how we got here, but once the, now that the tariffs are in place, the ten percent and then the, the, the some part of the tariffs, twenty five percent. I think Lighthizer is right, and the president actually seems to have backed him last week to keep the tariffs on even after an agreement because you then need to see if the Chinese promise, for instance, that they will change regulations that that really hurt U.S. corporations and other corporations or that they will change their laws about intellectual property as well as stop the theft of intellectual property. You won't know that if, let's say, they make a deal at the 1st of May. You won't know that the 1st of May. And so Lighthizer is pushing for some sort of mechanism that the United States would see that the, that the Chinese are actually falling through on their word, which they have not done often in the past, uh, and then be able to continue or even retaliate further if they do not. Now, there are those who uh, don't think that enforcement uh, could work, and it's going to be difficult. I mean, we're not talking about... Uh, just changing a tariff. We're talking about looking at the regulatory process within China or within any nation. It would be difficult to track. But I think that's where we are. And, and I think Lighthizer in this case, though I disagree with him on a lot of things, he's right in terms of how you proceed if you get a deal. That deal will then stretch out or the enforcement of that deal will stretch out over months and years. All right. So it's going to, it's going to take a uh, sort of a long-term commitment by the United States. Yes. To continue to monitor and be yes. willing to hold uh, China uh, responsible. Speed to the fire, yes. Uh, what what are the stakes here? You talk about a strategic interest. What is, what is the interest? Is it U.S. economic power? Is it technology? What is the national security component? So when we talk strategy, what 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 are we really talking about? And what 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 is this? What are the, the big stakes here? 
Well, without sounding, you know, like this is some some sort of th- beginning of the end of the world. If we miss, <laughs> I do think that uh, this is why the structure. Yeah, if, 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 if this is the as opposed to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dumping on soybean farmers or wheat farmers, but the the things we're talking about in terms of the the future of the internet of the fifth generation rolling out of mobile, mm-hmm. uh, these are the future of the United States and other countries, and I think we have to put our ourselves in a position to be able to compete fairly uh, in the in the in these particular sectors and in this across this spectrum of technologies, and so I think that is the important thing. It it, it does have obvious. Uh, national security implications because uh, with 5G we can talk more about this. Uh, you really do get a situation in terms of the of the internet where you can get all kinds of uh, and we've had trouble with the continuing trouble with the Chinese in terms of of espionage, economic espionage, and just re- regular just normal your your run of the mill espionage that everybody participates in. So there are this starts as a trade negotiation, but it has certainly national security implications and ultimately. I think it has strategic implications in the sense that other nations are watching the United States as to how we react and how we challenge or not or choose not to challenge China. Right. Um, a lot of this seems to revolve around the Chinese telecommunications company uh, Huawei. It's a uh, massive. It is. It, it is there. It is one of their uh, you know tech giants, and we're very concerned that it has. Uh, uh, it is playing too big a role in the in the creation of this next generation of wireless technology. We're concerned that we're concerned sort of the espionage uh, issue is. Do you think that fundamentally is the concern that it is a legitimate national security concern? Or, as I think the Chinese suggest, this is all about the U.S. trying to remain economically dominant and trying to sort of hold down China's rise as an economic and technological competitor? I don't think – I don't in, in relation to Huawei itself, I don't think this is a symbol of the United States trying to keep the Chinese down. And I think there are legitimate national security issues related to Huawei. Uh, what Huawei is and what it is in in terms of what we've been talking about in 5G, it has been, it has emerged in the last two decades and certainly in the last decade as the premier company to provide the equipment for the base of the internet, the routers, um, the the network uh, fundamentals, if you will. Mm -hmm. And with 5G, I mean, this was true with, with the earlier generation, but with 5G, uh, it becomes inc- much more difficult to to track or to see what or the the or to track the ability of the Chinese government should it should it choose to do so to enter into these networks and to put either malware or to just be spying to to look to look at what you're doing right. because 5G without getting into a lot of technical detail is in one way sense just a multiple microprocessors and when you get into the so-called internet of things where you're talking about uh, automobiles, other mobile devices. You've got you will have thousands or millions of, in, of of different devices that'll be interconnected, and so it's going to be very difficult, I think. Uh, and particularly if you're not, if you don't have the base of the of the structure of the internet right. uh, to I mean, to track that. Right. To me, it does not seem an unreasonable argument that you would not want to have the company building the next generation internet infrastructure to be located in a country with an authoritarian at best or totalitarian government, which seems to be coming more so uh, rather, than, rather than going the other direction, becoming a, uh, a more market democratic economy. China seems to be going the, in the other direction. Uh, they, have that, uh, they have that company running 
really the, the, the premier communications infrastructure that underlay the global economy. Uh, it doesn't seem a crazy notion that that would be, that would be of concern, yet um, people will say, well, they, you know, uh, Chinese government has promised they're not going to interfere. Huawei says we don't give information. That, you know, who would ever buy their products again if, 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 uh, if, if that was the concern? It just it just seems to me that we're not dealing. This isn't a French company. It's not a German company. Um, it's a Chinese company, and that and that concern. I don't see how you you know negate that concern despite all these promises. Well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind to go back to a point you made earlier, and that is that the Chinese are saying that this is just us trying to hold them down, and that this is the United States pushing its own companies as it were. We have, as they say in the vernacular, we have no dog in this fight. The ironic thing is that in terms of the base structure, the base corporations, there is no U.S. corporation. We are actually dependent on two European corporations, Ericsson and Nokia. Uh, as substitutes, and we can talk a little bit more, the United States is in a situation where um, it, we've reached a point where Ericsson and particularly Nokia are in some difficulty internally. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly true, as I say, with, with, with Nokia. Are they going to be uh, adequate substitutes? And if they're not, what do you do? And the administration has not really faced up, I think, to that. I just heard this. So the choice week- is between two uh, companies facing some measure of difficulty and a company which seems completely healthy. They seem to be making yes. great products at a, at a great cost. Uh, but it's hard to fundamentally trust them. That's true. But it, and the other thing that's said uh, that the, the Chinese say, and, the, and Huawei keeps coming back again and again to this, and it's true so far as we know, there's been no, no evidence that the Chinese government has actually intervened right. and done anything in terms of, of the networks or in terms of base structure. The problem with that, though, is that we, have, we are just beginning 5G. We don't, 5G is not here yet. And the, the point I made that this has become infinitely more difficult to track and to be, to be aware of what would happen uh, or, to, or be on top of what would happen uh, is still in the future. So for, the, for the Huawei to say nothing has happened yet, and I am one who has blasted the Congress and others years ago for having, without any evidence whatsoever, said that this this was happening. And the, under Obama, they looked very carefully. And as a matter of fact, the NSA had the ability and still does to rummage all through Huawei's top you know, communications, such as communication with the Chinese government in 2011, 2012, and they didn't find anything. But that doesn't really help us now because it's the future you, you have to worry about. And the future is much more complicated and would be much more difficult to track. Um, so the situation is that, uh, yes, I think there is legitimate. But the other point to make, and it comes to right today or the past weeks, the administration, and I just read before I came down here that Pompeo said that, well, we're, we're making progress to the Europeans. The administration for over a year, first quietly, and then in the last four or five months, really vocally, has been warning, particularly our European allies and particularly NATO allies, that if they accept Huawei equipment for 5G, it would make it very difficult to communicate in terms of security communications among NATO nations and with the United States. And the Supreme Allied Commander, General Scaparato, just last week, uh, was asked about this up in the House Armed Services Committee, and he said, there's just no way we could do that. And then he, and he also added, if the individual companies, uh, countries accept Huawei, and Huawei is also part of whatever security 
communication system they have, then we would have to cut it off entirely. So this is not just the... Why aren't the Europeans as concerned? I beg your pardon? Why aren't the Europeans as concerned? They are concerned, but here you get a trap. <laughs> Maybe it's not a trap, but a, a, a difficult decision. Huawei has... is. It, it doesn't control all of the, the individual national networks uh, in in Europe, but it has a very strong presence, and it's going to be there. Then there two. Then that puts you with two two problems. One, it was going to be very expensive to rip out Huawei equipment and put in new equipment, and it would also can all kinds of problems if you're using you're used to Huawei equipment and then you try to switch over to Ericsson or Nokia. That's going to be difficult. Um, the other thing is that uh, the, the Europeans are worried about the fact that this was – that, that uh, Huawei actually has better equipment that's cheaper. And are they being asked – and we have the same problem, by the way. Right. It could be ironically if we were to use – if we, uh, we are using Nokia and Ericsson, are, we, are you hurting yourself technologically? And so the administration um, is increasingly warning the European countries, but the European – it's not untypical. The Europeans, they just can't get their act together. Right. And it looks as if we're losing actually. Uh, Merkel and, uh, and the French – uh, they bow in our direction, but they, you know, for a variety of reasons, don't want completely to ban Huawei, not least because they, 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 like our companies, want to compete in the Chinese market. The key, one key that's final point here is that I think for the administration, a really major blow came a month or so ago, some weeks ago, when the Brits, who are part of the Five I, which is a group of five countries that have a special security relationship with Canada and Australia and New Zealand, announced that they were not going to. They didn't. It looks as if they're moving toward not banning uh, Huawei. British Telecom has a lot of, of Huawei equipment, and even though it said that it would not use a lot of some of it in the inner parts of the of the five G, uh, it's still going to use it. Uh, that really is a blow to the United States in terms of security. Now, there, we are meeting with the Five I nations sometime in the next week or two, but uh, we'll just have to see what that's what's what's happening there. Uh, has there been any talk of uh, if if we're concerned that you have this dominant Chinese company and sort of the Western competitors are not as strong, creating some sort of consortium? You know, we had uh, we had Airbus to counter Boeing. Maybe there should be a Western consortium to create our own stronger, healthier company to create this telecommunications and internet equipment? Well, as you... About a year ago, there was a, a proposal that came out of the National Security Council suddenly that talked about nationalizing. It was not clearly defined at the time what nationalizing meant, 5G. Uh, and we have since had... Uh, Former Speaker Newt Gingrich and others have pointed – they're actually not tra- talking about nationalizing. They're talking about changing the way we, we auction the spectrum. It's been all kind of lumped together in, in nationalization. Some, some sort of greater government role in all. Yes. And I mean I think one, one thing to keep in mind is that if you start, you start de novo, you're not going to create a new Huawei. <laughs> Huawei is two decades old in terms of its of its growth, and also you just we don't as I said we don't have a dog in this fight. So the alternatives would be I think, and there's been in, some in the past in the past when we fall when we perceive that we've fallen behind in technology. I think I think there were semiconductors in the early maybe 1980s. Did semitech? Yeah, we need to create some. We need to create just directly create a competitor. Um, we, but we, we didn't. That, we, that, we actually never had to. Here, you'd actually 
directly create if you're going to start in the United States right. a competitor. And there are no companies that would actually that would that would be ready, I think, to step forward. In Semitech, what you had, you already had very sophisticated companies in semiconductors, and it was a question of getting them together. They so weren't starting with blanks like to actually. But you didn't a, start. A, you didn't just start with a new semiconductor industry. Mm-hmm. And so I think the uh, the the alternative would would be, and there's been some talk of this, so I don't know how far you know it's gone. Would be to somehow shore up either. Uh, or both, uh, Ericsson and Nokia. That would be an extraordinary situation if you got the situation, though it's not impossible to imagine, where the United States is intervening with government funds or some sort of government action to help two foreign companies. Right. Right. So what that hasn't gotten very far, but it, 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 there were there have been news articles that this that within the Defense Department they're, th- they're considering how do we help these two companies. How concerned are you about the national security implications? Um, we sort of outlined, you know, some some of the some of the potential risks, things people are worried about. As you as you've been looking at it, how concerned would you have would you be to have Huawei running the internet backbone as, over the next twenty five? Yeah, as someone who ridiculed or thought in 2011 2012 that the yes it was a problem but I didn't see any any and that I didn't think it was that much of a problem at the time and at the time we'd already scrubbed down and looked through all of the connections between Huawei and the Chinese government I'm much more concerned now because the tech and why am I changed my mind because the technology has changed as I said you know as we've gone over 5G is just going to be so much more difficult to track it may also be I should say Impossible, even if we let's say we get uh, Ericsson and Nokia as substitutes, and we have the base there. Five G is going to be really difficult in, in terms of keeping track of where things are and where things are going, and where you can insert malware and where you can actually get into the into the system, and just not that you'd have malware just lie there and and wait and keep track of it. So, but I think I, I certainly, even if that's the case, ultimately. I think it is it is, uh, is it is necessary and proper to do what you can in terms of you know the one the one company you know could be the biggest problem. Right. I mean, just, I mean, just to take a step back, it seems that we've been we we look at this as sort of a, a, a race. There's a technology race. There's a five right. G race, and with artificial intelligence, that we're in this race with China, which to me suggests it's kind of a it's kind of a Cold War kind of framing that there's a space race. Someone's someone's going to get to the moon first, uh, and someone will someone will dominate the will space, and someone won't. That it's an either or uh, sort of proposition. Do you think that is the right way to view that the five G race, the AI race, this technology race between the U.S. and China, um, or, or or is that not the right metaphor? Because it, it would seem to me that. China does creates technologies that are that are that are that are better. They might have their areas of specialty. We might have ours. That that there is some mutual benefit from China becoming a more technologically advanced nation. Or is it they win, we lose, we lose, they win? Well, I mean, I think with China, you do have a different situation. I suppose in some ways, it's not different from the Soviets in the late in the fifties and early sixties. And there, the moon race really galvanized the United States beyond just the technologies related to the moon race. I think. For me, it's the question of yes, it is a race, but it's then a question of how you handle it. Um, you you don't panic. I mean, there's some sense of panic in these proposals that have come out about nationalizing 5G, and so that I think. I mean, let's be clear. This is an authoritarian, and as you said, in, in, a to- potentially totalitarian government, 
and this the new technologies are allowing already allowing the Chinese to have greater control uh, over their population, and it's allowed. You know, it's not just you're, you're seeing other authoritarian governments use the same kinds of technology, face, facial recognition or tracking where someone is with cameras everywhere. Indeed, so those that, indeed, those. So this is beyond just economic. Be, These are technologies yeah. that are part of this new mobile five G world that we're moving into. So I certainly think there is some, some cons- necessary to be concerned. And I, you know, as I say, I disagree with a lot of what the Trump administration does in trade. But in terms of China and the way they've handled it so far, to go back to where we were at the beginning, uh, I'm, I'm rarely, if ever, on Mr. Lighthizer's side. But as I've written, I am on his side in terms, in terms of China. Right. Uh, so we're not going to – I don't think we're going to change the entire Chinese government. We're not going to change their entire, their entire sort of government, uh, centrally planned economic system. Uh, anytime soon. So what can we reasonably expect for change Chinese behavior, um, whether it's um, them subsidizing companies or or stealing forced technology transfer, intellectual property? What can we think reasonably expect? And would the, and is the impact of those reasonable, reasonable expectations significant? Well, I think... It is hard to know where this is going to end, but I think the most important thing for the United States, and here I would fault the, the Trump administration, is that, I mean, l- let's take worst-case scenario. We could be moving to a world in which you've really got two big systems, right. and then just take the internet, that you've got two internets, uh, and that the, the, the there will be Chinese nations— Chinese internet that, and a Yeah, and a, a U.S., Western, and, and then there are complications of the U.S. and Europe. I understand that. Yeah. But— <clears throat> If that's the case, I think we certainly – at this point, we haven't gotten to that point. The Chinese are saying that they, that they are not challenging the so-called liberal world order in terms of trade, let's say trade policy and the World Trade Organization. They've made a big deal, which they can do because of the way the Trump administration and Mr. Lighthizer have handled the World Trade Organization. But here I think we ought to just for the moment and for the immediate future hold them to their word. They say they want to compete fairly and that they do not want – they're not trying to give any special uh, uh, privileges to Chinese corporations. And there you can hold them to the questions of technology transfer and subsidies uh, and terms of regulatory policy as a, they are members of the WTO. Now, that gets us back to the situation of the WTO where, again, the administration starts behind the eight ball because it's been so critical of like the WTO. Seems like they're not much interested in the WTO. That's right. But I think the key is that I mean, I, it could very well be that you're heading in the WTO for um, so-called plurilateral agreements and where the United States could try to pull the nations who, do, who really want liberal trade and liberal investment uh, to, a new, to new sets of rules related to uh, subsidies, related to government intervention in terms of regulations and in terms, in terms of the of, of data, of, of digital trade. And so I, I think the administration ought to continue the way it's going in terms of China, but it also ought to, even though I am skeptical of the Europeans getting their act together, we ought to at least have them, at, try to have them at the table and the Japanese also, so that you do have a core of nations that generally agree about a future of, a, let's say, 5G world order in terms of digital trade rules and in terms of advanced technology rules that affect trade and investment. It could be that we end up not being able to do that. It could be that the world is going to split. Right. But we're not there yet. 
and that, that makes these negotiations quite critical because you've got to real we've got to realize that the Chinese formally still say they want to be a part of the existing world trade and investment uh, uh, system, and so I think we ought to play that out and just see just see where it, where it goes at the moment and. As far as the enforcement mechanism, well, let's say let's say the the stick here. Should the stick be uh, tariffs? Should we should we be going instead, or in addition, just going after individual uh, Chinese companies that we feel are breaking these rules, are engaged in a sort of tech IP theft? What what should be sort of the the punitive well, aspect? I think it should be a panoply of issues, and I would say that there are those, uh, and even my colleague Dirk Scissors here at AEI, who don't who think the enforcement is not going to be possible. Dirk may be right, but I think that's the way the Lighthouse is right to 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 try this, and so it would depend. And here we don't disagree. In in terms of intellectual property, for instance, if you if a company a Chinese company is found in, in having participating in some sort of theft or using, and here we're going to have to be more vigilant in, in following this ourselves, in using some technology uh, or system that they've really stolen, I would ban them from the U.S. market. And I would, ban, I would go after them in, in terms of capital markets around the world. If the Chinese, for instance, continue to refuse to allow real competition in particular sectors or close off sectors for investment, I would ban the Chinese companies here. And again, I would go after them in capital markets. In other words, I think it's the investment side that is more productive and from the beginning has always been more productive for me than the tariffs. We've got the tariffs and I know the administration is going to – so we're – I'm not – there's nothing I can do about the fact that Trump's president. He likes to use tariffs. So I wouldn't I, – I wouldn't – I don't like tariffs, but I wouldn't – they're not – they're going to use them. And if you have to have a weapon, you would use them. I think because it World Trade Organization rules are very limited about investment and because I think it's less of a problem. I think that's the way I would go in terms of enforcement. And, you know, I, I – it may very well be that it's tough – to enforce something when you get down. You're really down into – it's not like they have violated a tariff. That's easy to see. Right. But if there is some kind of regulation that they put in place, it means that if you are a semiconductor company in in China or you've, you're providing – well, the classic place I think where it should be front and center, and I think it is now, and it's emerged in the last months, is cloud services where it's really virtually impossible to compete fairly in China. Uh, both in terms of economic competition and also the fact that you have to have a Chinese partner and you have to go to the Chinese government. So there's always the question of whether or not they can get into what you're doing. So, you know, those are the things I would that would, would, would key on. And also, um, we may fail, but, you know, he, here are the sanctions we're going to put on you uh, if we find that this is continuing. Uh, this is a, just a, a question that came up at a recent conference I was at. Uh, would you dissuade or ban American technology companies from engaging in research in China that could sort of help the Chinese industry eventually maybe have military applications? Would you allow American companies to set up advanced AI research centers in China? Well, this has come out specifically with Google yeah. and the Defense Department and yeah. U.S. generals have to criticize Google. Yes. Google's in a particularly bad situation because it walked away from at least one big contract because of the the top of the company folded in terms of some of the disgruntled employees. I think that I, I would not have a – there's one place I wouldn't have a blanket uh, across-the-board policy. If, for instance, in universities, 
and, and I, I'm probably a, a minority here. As long as a, if the Chinese are funding Harvard or Yale or Northwestern or somebody for thank basic you, research, thank you for Northwestern, that's awesome. Me too. Oh. My PhDs from Northwestern. If they're funding, if they're funding, you know, basic research where you're publishing, right? I don't know. I, I'm less of a problem if it's something that gets involved in that's moving toward techno- applied and 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 some sort of demonstration where it's clearly. The case, you know, the case that it has security implications or could in the future, uh, then I think you, you, you have to be much more careful. Uh, what's the unhappy ending here, uh, both with the, the trade conflict and um, just the overall economic relationship, relationship between the chi- China and the United States? Over the over the coming years, I mean, if it if it sort of goes south, well, there's several. Like? I mean, it could be as we talked about uh, before here that uh, that we just uh, settle for some extra soybeans and wheat, and that's that's a real defeat for the United States. The other bad situation would be that the, the you know that it ends in really disgruntlement on both sides and disaffection and anger and more uh, tariffs. And more tariffs. Uh, I mean, th- th- as I say, this is not the way I would go with, but I think it, the, this is the way the admin- this administration would go. Now, I think it's kind of a fundamental reach- question: Can you work in a mutually beneficial way with China uh, that you know uh, that assumes China is going to become more important economically and technologically? But that sort of Okay, because because that's gonna that that you can't stop that, and you just and you need to focus also on your own on yourself becoming more competitive. Well, as a general rule, and this was this uh, now I'm showing in all kinds of ways my age. This is my this was my reaction when we went through the same thing. But in a much less now we look back on it in a much less vital in terms of your security. But that was my own, that was my reaction. To what you just said about we ought to look internally first when the, the whole U.S. Japan. Conflict in the late in the eighties and early nineties. I mean, the the problems that I think we had were problems at home. And now, don't worry. You know, you worried about the China, the Japanese were going number one, going to take over the world. I think it's more, it's much more difficult and more complex now because China can Japan China is not is a Japan large country. Plus Soviet Union, they're like they're like well, a China is going to be the number one economy in the world in the next at some point in the next decade or two. You know, they may have their own problems, and that's the other thing to keep, be aware of that that they are creating problems for themselves internally, and Xi Jinping knows that. But the the situation is very different in in with Japan that the, the Japan was never going to be, or at least for any foreseeable future in the next century or so, uh, or even after that, uh, a, a strategic competitor, a potential foe to the United States. We'd already gotten that past in the nineteen thirties and forties. With China, it's very different. It's going to be a long. It could be a long term, certainly con- strategic competitor, and I think. One of the problems you face is I, to go back to something just in trade. To, as we're getting close to the end here. The so-called liberal trading order, the world trading system after the Second World War, um, it accommodated state intervention. I mean, the 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 GATT and the WTO do not say you have to rid yourself of all public uh, public companies. As a matter of fact, you know, in the 40s and 50s, as Europe was rebuilding, as Japan was rebuilding, you had government control, government intervention across the board. 
you know, as late as the 19, early in 1980, Mitterrand, President Mitterrand of France nationalized the entire banking system in France. He learned a, the French learned a lesson from that. But it wasn't that you had government intervention. What we have not faced before, and this gets, I think, to, to, the, to the nub of the issue, is, a, is particularly a country as large as China is and is, is going to continue to be an authoritarian state-centered system. This is a system that with the control of the Communist Party is the key here. And so when we talk to Xi Jinping or we argue to him, you've got to do something about the Great Firewall because it's used as an industrial policy tool. Or you've, you've got to do something about the subsidies to these high-technology, defense-related and, and sometimes non-defense-related. He doesn't just see this as a – particularly let's take the Great Firewall as an example. He doesn't see this as an economic issue. He sees this as central to the control, continued control of Chinese society uh, uh, in the future. And so it's very difficult – this is not just a trade issue. It doesn't mean that on our side we're not going to say they certainly did use the Great Firewall to create and foster Alibaba and Tencent and keep other – the Googles and the Amazons out. But you do face a situation where for the Chinese government this is a political issue and an issue to them Existential a political – Existential issue of their – Exactly. Survival. Government. My guest today has been Claude Barfield. Claude, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah.